You're listening to the Psych Central Podcast, where guest experts in the field of psychology and mental health share thought-provoking information using plain, everyday language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling into the show today, we have Dr. Barry L. Duncan. Dr. Duncan is the CEO of Better Outcomes Now and a psychologist, trainer, and researcher. His self-help books, the latest is What's Right With You, have led to appearances on Oprah, The View, and several other national TV programs. Dr. Duncan, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to discuss holding therapists accountable and their need to evolve. Now, as a person living with bipolar disorder, I can tell you that patients are always encouraged to change our way of thinking and and, and to evolve. But in some ways, therapy hasn't really changed all that much in the 20 years that I've been involved. Now, I've been involved as a patient. But Dr. Duncan, what are your overall thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right on the money with that. I mean, as a profession, we really haven't changed a heck of a lot in the last hundred years in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of these models and techniques. In fact, there's over 400 models and techniques now. But a lot of things about psychotherapy have not changed, like, for example, who's in charge and how the hierarchy works and who calls the shots and how collaborative it is and all those things are pretty much um, the same as it's always been. And that's why we do need for a therapist and for the field itself to evolve, to be a bit more accountable than it's been in its uh, last hundred years. It's interesting to me that you say it really hasn't evolved in the last hundred years because everything's evolved in a hundred years. I, I can't hang on to a cell phone for more than six months before it's considered outdated old technology. So for something to last a hundred years, was it just perfect or are we really using this antiquated method that isn't giving us our best results? There have been an evolution of different models and techniques and ways of understanding people's problems and way of treating people's problems. The only problem with that is that no one approach now developed is any more effective than the approaches developed 50 years ago. Gotcha. All approaches work about equally well. That means then that psychotherapy as a treatment endeavor has not improved its effectiveness. It was as effective 50 years ago as it is right now. That's the disconcerting part. And that is because we have not been results oriented. We haven't been accountable to the client, the consumer, the patient, whatever you want to call that person sitting in the room with you. We haven't been accountable to what they think would be a successful conclusion to the therapy. And is that who you think that therapists should be accountable to? Yes, should be totally accountable to their perception of their own benefit, their perception of their experience of the therapy itself, rather than fitting the therapist, the provider, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, whoever they're seeing, instead of fitting their viewpoint of how the therapy should go, how the patient should wind up. It should be taken from the construction, the perception of the person receiving the treatment. Do you get a lot of pushback when you say that? Because I know people living with mental illness or or even people with mental health concerns, we often feel like whenever things go well, it's because we have a great therapist. And whenever things go poorly, it's because we're not listening to our great therapist. That's our world. But you're over on the other side. Do your colleagues like you saying this publicly? 
Actually, a lot of them do, but there's a portion that don't. They like that arrangement where they blame the client when there's no change and take credit when there is. I would like for that to be spun around completely 180 there. And when there is change, that the client take credit for making the changes because they're the ones doing it. And when there's no change, it's about the treatment model and how the treatment model interacts and is the right fit for the person receiving it rather than putting the blame on the client's shoulders, which is what psychotherapy has done since the beginning, right? When there's no change, it's because of the client's psychopathology. Think about how we've organized our profession. If you change, it's because I'm so super brilliant and I'm a great practitioner. If you don't change well, you are quite sick. <laughs> This is going to take more time, more effort, more drugs, more therapy. That's been the kind of mentality. I think that kind of story is reaching its end at this point, and people are starting to realize that there's far more fruitful ways of going about this. A lot of my listeners don't know this, but whenever we set up a guest on the show, we always ask the guests to submit some questions because they know the questions that they get asked most of all. And I can't know everything as, as much as I tell my wife that I do. And one of the questions that you submitted, I think it might be my favorite question ever. The question is, what does the death of George Washington have to do with our topic today, Dr. Duncan? <laughs> Actually, it is the perfect story for our situation today, because here's what happened to good old George. After he retired from the presidency, he used to ride his Mount Vernon estate every morning. And on a cold, blustery December day in 1799, he got back from his ride and he got a sore throat and a cough. And so they put him to bed and they summoned the area physicians. The first physician got there and administered the standard of care of the day, and Washington's condition grew worse. The second physician got there, re-administered the standard of care of the day, and Washington lost consciousness. And then finally, the third physician arrived later that night, re-administered the standard of care to an unconscious George Washington, and by the next morning, George was dead. Now, what was that standard of care? It was bloodletting. And while medical historians quibble over whether or not the bloodletting hastened his demise or outright killed him, the fact of the matter is that they continued to apply the same treatment despite direct evidence from the patient that it clearly was not working and making him worse. And that's exactly what people do today. They will continue to administer the same treatment to a client despite direct evidence that the treatment isn't working. That co-creates chronicity in clients. It causes them to get worse over time. We used to call that bloated file syndrome. It was more about the person that had been in so many unsuccessful treatments, more so about that than about the person themselves. The people begin to have a mentality about themselves that they're untreatable, they're too sick, they'll never get better, rather than having it look to the outside and saying, gosh, maybe the treatments I've been getting are not what I am needing, and let me try different people, different treatments to see if I can get to a better place. I think that this leads to patients just giving up. I hear the word quackery a lot. I hear that they, the therapist just wanted to talk to me and it didn't do any good. And, and you hear a lot of terms to describe therapists from the disgruntled. Do you think that part of that disgruntledness <laughs> comes from what you've just described? Absolutely. People become disgruntled when there's no change and when they see no possibility for change or no hope for change. One of the factors that makes treatment beneficial for people is that it inspires hope. 
a very famous psychiatrist, Jerome Frank, had a very nice perspective on this. And he thought that when people come to treatment, they are demoralized by their life. And they believe that every day is going to be just as miserable as today. But what therapy does is it, in his words, remoralizes or gives them the possibility that's not true. And then that inspires people, it catalyzes them into action, and then they do things to make meaningful changes in their lives. When it's not helping, therapy can make you quite disgruntled and start to believe that you're unchangeable, which is the worst conceivable outcome. So this begs the question, Dr. Duncan, how do we get therapy, which, as you stated, hasn't really changed all that much in the last hundred years? How do we get them all to change? There has been a movement within psychotherapy that's called systematic client feedback. And Michael Lampert is the pioneer of this. And he had this idea that why not measure in each encounter whether clients believe they're benefiting from their therapy, and then those clients who aren't benefiting will be identified so that the therapist can then do something different with them. That's a great idea, but there's a more radical side that really appealed to me, and that was that don't make it an expert kind of a process. Don't make it to where it just gives information to the therapist. Why not let it be a collaborative process that's done together with the client and the provider and have that process of monitoring outcome to see whether or not the person's benefiting, and then collaboratively figuring out what else can be done or to move them on to greener pastures with somebody else, if indeed they can't collaboratively come up with different ideas to be beneficial to the client. The relationship um, is called the therapeutic alliance, but if the alliance isn't good, it's very unlikely for anything good to happen in the therapy. We also check in with people in each and every encounter about how was this experience for you today? Are we talking about the right stuff? The approach that we've taken to address your goals, do you really think that's going to be helpful to you? So we check that out with these two four-item scales. It takes less than five minutes. And when you do that, you identify the consumers who aren't benefiting. Because an important thing to know with that, and Gabe, is that who is providing the service accounts for most of the change of any treatment being administered. Now, what that means is that it doesn't matter whether you're psychodynamic or you're cognitive behavioral, who you are as a person accounts for much more of how change happens with clients than the models and techniques that you use. If that isn't in line with the client, the best thing you could do is to fire yourself and let the person see someone else. Let's step away from therapy for a moment and even step away from mental health treatment and into physical health treatment or into just patients versus doctors. There's a huge movement in America right now for patients' voices to be heard. And, and, and again, I want to be very clear, this isn't a, a therapy relationship or even a mental health relationship. This is all of patients feel that they are not being partnered with. And when I say all of patients, they don't have the downside of having the discrimination or the stigma of being out of their mind or crazy or not thinking straight or we need to do this for their own good because after all, they can't advocate for themselves because they're sick. And I point that out because if it's happening over on the quote unquote physical health side, meaning for somebody with cancer, for example, what hope does the mental health side have? Because we're much easier to ignore. Can you talk on that for a moment? Because I know that many patients are like, look, even in the best of circumstances, we're not believed. 
But from a medical point of view, it's really the same dynamic that exists. You have an expert and a patient who needs the help of the expert. What you find is that relationship in medical treatment is also predictive of eventual outcomes, even with biological markers. There's been a you know, recent research in the last five years that when patients believe they have a good relationship and good communication with their medical provider, they get better outcomes and even biological marker better outcomes. So the same processes could be helpful in medical care. And in fact, my colleagues and I have developed measures for primary care docs. So the same dynamics exist there. We've validated our measures in primary care sites. And our next step is to actually try and see if it improves outcomes. Once we started measuring outcomes and doing this collaborative process with clients in psychotherapy to solicit their views of whether they're benefiting and solicit their views of how the experience of therapy was going, we then started doing randomized clinical trials, which is the language of science, where you compare clients who didn't have this as part of their treatment and clients who did. And we've done eight randomized clinical trials now, and it doubles overall treatment outcomes for those clients who have systematic client feedback as part of their therapy. I don't know why we separate mental health and physical health out, but for the purposes of this conversation, moving it out of the physical health realm and into the mental health realm, patients know that we have to be involved. We see a therapist one hour a week, and then all the other hours are hours. Essentially, if we don't participate in therapy, it does not work. We know that hard stop. You cannot send an unwilling person to therapy and expect it to do any good. They'll just sit there and ignore you for an hour and then go off and do whatever they want. So knowing that is an absolute fact, why do you think you're getting any pushback whatsoever? Is there, I'm, I'm going to use a mean word, is there just an arrogance among therapists that they can convince people who don't want to listen to listen? Or is it just deeper than that? I think there's certainly an arrogance there, but I, I think that there's a, I call it organizational apathy toward doing anything that's a change. We like to work the way we've always worked. That's always worked for us before. They see it as adding to what they're already doing. A lot of therapists believe that they are overworked and underpaid. The master's in social work and master's in counseling are the two lowest paid master's degrees in the United States. It's different in Europe, but here in the U.S., it's a very low paid master's degree. People feel up against it a lot of times. And so when they're asked to do more, you know, someone comes in from the outside and said, you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and it improves outcomes and decreases dropouts. It's a way to be collaborative with people that go, yeah, I heard that with the last paradigm shift. So people tend to hunker down. Implementation is a long-term process for people and it takes training and use and supervision. And I basically tell people when I'm implementing an agency that you know, about 25 to 33% of therapists will say, I really like this. I'm going to do it. I see the benefit from it right away. But then everybody else has to be brought along. And most people learn from their own experience. So they need to have the experience of it being useful to them before they'll completely buy in. Arrogance is certainly part of it. And there's that and this is an old, old idea, back and from the beginning, the sanctity of the closed room, nobody else in there except me and the client, no outside influences, and this is this private time, and I don't want to let anybody else or anything else in, and doing any measurement process or formally soliciting the client's voice is not what I'm about. The really sad part, Gabe, is that a lot of therapists, and this is the arrogance part, believe that they know 
what the client needs and wants without ever asking them. That's the part that drives me crazy. They think they already know the answer. We did a, an RCT in Norway. The person I was working with, uh, Morton Anker, he's a good friend of mine, he did a survey of the therapists before we did the trial. And there were 10 therapists, and he asked them, do you think that getting systematic client feedback about the client's view of benefit and their view of the alliance, do you think that will improve your effectiveness? All 10 said no. We already know whether people are benefiting. We already know whether we have a good alliance with people. And guess what happened? Only one of the 10 was correct because nine out of 10 improved their effectiveness with this systematic feedback from the client. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Gabe here, and I wanted to tell you about Psych Central's other podcast that I host, Not Crazy. It's straight talk about the world of mental illness, and it's hosted by me and my ex-wife. You should check it out at psychcentral.com slash notcrazy or your favorite podcast player. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Barry L. Duncan discussing how to hold therapists accountable and their need to evolve. Dr. Duncan, you're met with this resistance and you are able to overcome it. But what do you say? There's this knee-jerk reaction in me to say, hey, I told you that this would be better for your patients. Why are you arguing with me? But I I know as an advocate, yelling at people doesn't ever work. So I'm curious as to your method, because as you said, you're overcoming years of thinking and people's ways of doing things. Yeah, we've implemented many places. In fact, we have 1.5 million administrations of our measures in our database. So there are many people doing it. There are 30,000 registered um, users on our website. But there is this kind of initial response. And when I first started training people, I was shocked that they didn't say, wow, this is such a great idea. We're going to do this right away because it identifies our people who aren't benefiting and makes therapy more collaborative and honoring the client's voice and all these values that people are always reporting that they have. But when push came to shove, they wouldn't actually do it. And I was shocked by that. I had to develop ways of inspiring people rather than mandating people do this. What really got me into it was It was about social justice and client privilege and making sure that we leveled the playing field with clients and we got them engaged and involved. You know, other people get on board for other reasons. It identifies the people who are likely to drop out before they drop out. It improves effectiveness. It's been proven in real world settings to raise the bar of everybody's performance. It involves the known predictors of how people change. My kind of go-to in helping win people over is to show them the work. Therapists really like to see the work itself because then I go from being a talker about it to, to showing them. And I, of course, releases from my clients and anonymize the, the videos, but I show them me actually doing this with people and people's comments about liking being involved in the process, liking being involved 
in all the decisions, liking how transparent the process is, and getting better, recapturing some people that who would have otherwise not benefited. I have a, a video that's very popular with therapists where it's a client who I was not successful with. I really wanted to be successful with her. I really liked her. She was a great young person. Couldn't have wanted her to work through her struggles more, but I was not the right fit for whatever reason. And then I do a consult with one of my colleagues who took over therapy, and then she changed quite uh, rapidly. So the message is that we all have clients who don't benefit. There's nobody that's 100% effective. The very best therapists on the planet are about two-thirds effective, which means that one-third of their clients do not benefit. But if we identify who those third are, we can either change up what we're doing or we can get them in front of somebody else that is a better fit. In the old days, before I started doing this, I think I would eventually figure out that I wasn't being helpful to people, but they may have dropped out by the time I figured it out. Right. And then you can't refer them. They can't refer them. And it means they walk away saying therapy wasn't helpful rather than saying therapy with Barry wasn't helpful. And it could be helpful with somebody else with different ideas, different trainings, different kind of personality, whatever. It got me tuned in to right away with people on the second or third encounter saying, doesn't look like anything's happened yet. What do you think we should do about that? And that conversation is, is really cool because it does comment on the partnership and we can get to maybe if there is something that's holding us back, have a frank conversation about it and move on. Or we need to change approaches altogether or think about it in a different way. Dr. Duncan, is there any downside to holding therapists accountable and to your method? We've talked a lot about the positives, but let's be fair. Does the pendulum swing back the other way? There there could be potential downsides. For example, if the payers, managed care companies, um, insurance companies um, use this as the sole decision to throw people out of therapy, right? Oh, you've reached maximum gain, no more sessions for you. Rather than that being, this is information, the decision is made between the client and the therapist about when therapy should end or when it should be cut back or what have you. It also could be a downside if management decided to use it in a punitive way. For example, say you're a therapist, Gabe, and I say to you, well, we measure outcomes here with this system. And if you don't attain 60% effectiveness with your clients, you'll be reprimanded. Or if you get 60%, I'll give you a raise. That would be a really horrible consequence. So in all of my contracts and all of my agreements, I spell those things out that it can't be used that way. It can't be used to reward or punish therapists. It can't be used as a sole determinant of whether a person continues in therapy or not. Because again, those decisions are far more collaborative than that than a number from a scale. But the number from the scale is our insurance policy in that it keeps us honest so that we have those conversations with people One thing that I really is troubling to me as I look at therapy across many organizations and many therapists is that therapy can devolve into a place where there's only a processing of the client's life. Just an ongoing commentary on what's happened that week with no thematic connection to a change that is being strived for. That winds up happening because it's a much easier thing for people to do rather than being accountable for making a meaningful difference in people's lives. That's why measuring outcomes is very important. It can prevent that. I do implementation in a lot of agencies and wind up doing supervision and I'll say, what are you working on? And I'll say, well, he's been through a lot and this is a place where he can come and get support. 
I say, so what's the end game to providing support? No, this is the only place that he can get that. I said, well, wouldn't it make sense to have a discussion about a goal about he could get support in his real world? Because you're not going to invite him home for Thanksgiving dinner, right? Right. (laughs) You're not really a support system. Not really. We're temporary support systems for people. We hope that they can get support systems in their natural world and that we are not a replacement for those things. And that's what happens a lot of times. Therapy can become replacements and we're not that kind of relationship. And those lines can get really blurred in those circumstances. When you're not accountable to first to the clients and first to there being some results that come from it, we can have these endless process-oriented, support-oriented therapies. Now, in saying that, there's nothing wrong with process or support, but there should be that change component that's a part of it. Dr. Duncan, as both a patient and a mental health advocate, I like anything that improves outcomes for patients because that's me. I want outcomes to improve. I do believe that therapists want outcomes to improve as well. It's just, uh, we've always done it this way. Why do we need to change? Change is scary. It's the kind of thing that you often go to therapy for. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, one of my favorite agencies uh, working with, they're called Wesley Community Action. And they have a big poster in their waiting room, and it says, we pledge to have as much courage as the people that we serve. We have to be courageous ourselves as therapists to make changes that we know are for the better, rather than staying the way we've always done, because that's where our comfort zone is. We ask clients to make changes all the time. We ourselves aren't willing to do it. It's sad commentary on us, basically. But it, it takes courage to do things that are different. It's hard for some therapists to get feedback that therapy's not helping. Okay, wouldn't you rather know it's not helping than believing that it does and then the client drops out and you don't know why? Some therapists are squeamish about getting direct feedback about the relationship. Those are incredible things for people to say to you because they're trusting you enough that there won't be some negative consequence by their being candid with you. And that's exactly what we want clients to be with us is as candid as possible It's a gift when clients say things negative to you, because if you can work through that with them, it will build the alliance even stronger and the client will be more likely to benefit from the service. I like that. I I, I like that a lot. Dr. Duncan, do you have any last words or, or comments on the topic? And also, where can people find you online? betteroutcomesnow.com is the website, betteroutcomesnow.com. And there's a section called resources. And there's all kinds of free resources there, articles, uh, videos about a lot of the stuff we talked about there are brief videos about. Lots of free stuff. In fact, 250 free downloads are on the website. Wow. Lots of cool stuff. And something I'd like to leave you with is if you were a client in therapy, if you would like for that therapy to be accountable, it would be a nice thing to bring up to your therapist. And you could tell your therapist that he or she could download the measures for free from the website, betteroutcomesnow.com, and watch a video and could learn how to use them quite readily. If they want to go so far as to read a book, they could do that too. In my book, What's Right With You, um, which is written for a general audience, I recommend that you monitor the progress of your own therapy. Even if your therapist does it, you do it. You monitor your own progress so that you have a sense from session to session whether or not you are gaining. And of course, that book tells you how to do that There's also stuff online that would help you how to do that. That's a free download. 
And advocating for yourself as a patient is something that, well, Gabe Howard, Psych Central, and pretty much every organization that I'm involved with highly recommends. Steer your own boat. I, th I think that's really the bottom line. When we wait for stuff to happen to us, we're, we're not really in control. And when we advocate for ourselves with our doctors, our medical teams, and, and even in our own families, workplaces, and general society, I think it really does impact our outcomes, our mental health, and of course, our overall lives. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Duncan. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole, which is available on Amazon, or you can get a signed copy for less money over at GabeHoward.com. And I'll even throw in stickers from the show. Remember, we have a super secret Facebook page over at PsychCentral.com slash FB show. I recommend that you sign up for that. If you have any topic ideas, please, please, please send them to me at show at PsychCentral.com. Wherever you downloaded this podcast, please, please subscribe. Use your words and tell other people why they should subscribe. Ratings are powerful. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We'll see everyone next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central Podcast. Want your audience to be wowed at your next event? Feature an appearance and live recording of the Psych Central podcast right from your stage. For more details or to book an event, please email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Psych Central is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, Psych Central offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening, and please share with your friends, family, and followers. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.